0: Well, if you have your Bible, I do invite you to turn with me uh, once more to the second chapter of Exodus, uh, where, in just a moment, we'll read from verse 11 through verse 25. Uh, At this point in Israel's history, they have been in Egypt now for some 400 years. And uh, where they had favor early on in their sojourn in Egypt, They've now come under heavy bondage and oppression. The first chapter tells us that a new pharaoh came to power, who subjugated the Israelites, made them slaves, and the people were crying out under the yoke of oppression. Well, this second chapter marks a turning point, really, in the history of God's people. It's a turning point in redemptive history It's a turning point for the people of Israel. Now, you're familiar with that expression, turning point. Uh, Generally speaking, a turning point refers to a decisive moment in a person's life when that person makes a decision that sort of sets their life uh, in a particular direction. It's a decisive situation after which a shift or a change, major change, occurs either for the better or for the worse. You know, life is really full of turning points, Uh, those rare occasions when you stand at a crossroads, Uh, moments when you have to make a decision, and you know that that decision is going to somehow forever change the trajectory of your life. And typically, those turning points in life are not predictable, they're not planned, They simply come upon us seemingly out of the blue, and yet these are moments that can be highly significant chapters in our lives. I think about certain turning points in my own life. Obviously, there was the turning point of my own personal conversion to faith in Jesus Christ as a child, and I'm so thankful. Uh, There's the turning point that happened in my life when I surrendered uh, to the call of God to preach the gospel. It marked a change, a, direct, a trajectory change in my life. I'll never forget the turning point that happened when I agreed to work on staff at a Christian camp in the summer. And little did I know that would be my first taste of Christian ministry, but there working on staff that summer, I would meet a young lady who would catch my eye. Amen. Amen. And then I would work up the courage to ask her out on a date, that was a major turning point in my life. And after she finally agreed, after turning me down a couple of times, finally convinced her, and what a turning point it was. Many of you can identify with that. There have been turning points in your life. You look back where there were decisions that you made, situations that happened that marked a change, a trajectory change in your life. Well, the same thing's true for the people of Israel here. In the second chapter of Exodus. It's a major turning point not simply a milestone but a turning point point. and I want you to notice how that turning point really is connected with the birth of a baby. And we looked at the first part of chapter 2 uh, here in Exodus last week and uh, we, we read about the birth of Moses in the first 10 verses of this chapter. Unbeknownst to the Israelites who are crying out in their bondage There's a baby that's being born. God's working even though it's behind the scenes. He's carrying out his redemptive plan even though it's happening under the radar, which by the way, that ought to remind you to never get discouraged in life when you feel like you don't know what God is up to because he's always working, folks. Under the radar, behind the scenes, his hidden providence always working, always working for our good and ultimately for his own glory. And so the birth of this baby in the second chapter of Exodus marks a turning point for the Israelites because this is the birth of the one whom God would use to lead the people of Israel out of their bondage. And so the story picks up. That baby grows up and becomes a man, and the story picks up in verse number 11. So read with me. The Bible says, One day uh, when Moses had grown up, verse 11, And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, uh, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian has delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he says to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the turning point. And again, this chapter marks a decisive turning point uh, in the history of the people of Israel. Not only is it a turning point for the Israelites, But it's a turning point for Moses personally. Because you'll notice that the chapter is dealing with uh, his life, his background, uh, what he had been exposed to, decisions that he makes, where he ends up. And yet the providential hand of God is working behind the scenes in his life. And so before he will ever be a useful instrument in the hands of God, Moses is going to have to be enrolled in the school of pain. Uh, Through what proves to be a major turning point in his own life, Moses is going to learn some very valuable lessons that will remain with him all throughout the remainder of his days. Now, you and I know Moses as the man of God that redemptive history shows him to be. Uh, We think of Moses, we think of the deliverer, we think of the lawgiver. Uh, We think about Moses, the man of God, there on the mountain of God receiving the Ten Commandments, leading the Israelites during their wilderness journeys. However, before God ever uses a man, God must first make that man. And so that's what we're seeing happen here in this second chapter of Exodus. God is making a man out of Moses. And often the making of a man happens, and and ladies, this is true of you as well, it often happens not in big, flashy, spectacular ways. It often doesn't happen on the mountaintop moments of life, but rather through the ordinary rhythms of life, through the ups and the downs of life the failures of life, the turning points of life. God is at work behind the scenes in our lives, shaping us into the people that he wants us to be. So it was for Moses, so it is for me and for you. Now, what are the lessons that Moses has to learn? Well, I find in this passage at least four lessons that Moses is going to have to learn. Now we'll look at two of these this morning and we'll come back later on and look at the other two. So notice first, Moses learns a personal lesson in identity. The first lesson that we see Moses learning has to do with his own personal identity. You see, in verse 11, the Bible says that Moses, when he grows up, he goes out to his people, he looks upon their burdens. He sees one of his people being afflicted. And so notice that Moses is identifying with the people of God here in this passage of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of years that go by in Moses' life here in Exodus chapter 2. The chapter begins with the story of his birth. It tells us virtually nothing about his childhood. And now, once we get to verse 11, it takes us all the way to a scene that happened when he was 40 years old. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, our text doesn't mention his age, but if you take your Bible and go over to Acts chapter seven for just a moment, uh, you'll notice that Stephen in his sermon before the Sanhedrin, uh, Stephen is going to fill us in on some background details of Moses's life at this point. And so notice what he says there uh, in in, in verse number 20 of uh, of Acts chapter seven, at this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in the sight of God brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So we know that Moses has spent his childhood years, his young adult years. He's a fully grown man now. He's grown up in the lap of Egyptian luxury. Now he's grown up as a prince of Egypt as it were, an adopted son of Pharaoh's own daughter. And verse 22 says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words, mighty in deeds. And so really, the only thing that's mentioned of these earlier years in Moses' life is this statement by Stephen that that tells us that he was adopted, uh, he was educated there in Egypt. Uh, He had an impressive resume. As the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he grows up as a prince. Uh, He receives the finest education in the entire world at that particular time. In fact, extra biblical sources say that he would have been educated in Heliopolis, uh, which is where Egyptian nobility were known to send their children. Heliopolis was one of the most ancient, oldest cities there in ancient Egypt, known to be an an urban and religious center, a very important place for Egyptian culture. And you know history. You know that that the ancient Egyptians were advanced in writing, had a system of writing known as hieroglyphics. They were well advanced in mathematics and geometry and architecture and all such as that. Uh, They studied history, music, music, Uh, language, medicine. Uh, Young men at this particular time would have been highly trained in the art of warfare. And so Moses would have been exposed to all of this education and so much more as a prince of Egypt. So according to Acts chapter seven, when Moses was 40 years old, now be honest, that that, that thought this week really resonated with me uh, because I just so happened to turn 40 on Wednesday of this week. And so it's a turning point in Moses' life, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what is it maybe that you're telling me this week as I'm studying this out? I find it interesting that it's at this point now that Moses, he's, he's, he's reaching that, I guess, middle age, which he's going to live to be 120, so middle age for him really hit until he gets to 60. But he's 40 years old. And, and, and he, he goes out, it, it comes into his heart, according to what Stephen says, to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And that's a very significant statement. Uh, Exodus 2.11 says it this way, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And that's a fact that's mentioned twice there in the verse. So the people of Israel are identified as his people, that is, Moses' people. It doesn't simply say that Moses went out to God's people or Moses went out to visit the Hebrews. Uh, it doesn't say that Moses went out to visit the people of Abraham. All of that was true, but here's what the text says. There came a point in time, it enters his heart to go out and visit his people. He sees these oppressed, enslaved Israelites as being his people. Moses knows who he is. There's this sense of solidarity that he shares uh, with these Hebrews. And so it's a statement of identity, which tells me that all of those years that Moses had spent in the palace of Pharaoh in the schools of Egypt had not eclipsed his knowledge of his origins because he knew who he was. Now, you want to know where I really believe he gained that insight and that knowledge? Well, if you go back to the earlier part of chapter 2, remember that Jacobed is getting paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own son. And so for the first several years, first few years rather of Moses' life, those formative years, those preschool years even, perhaps Moses is, is under the tutelage of Jacobed, his own mother. And I'm going to tell you what she's going to do. She's going to tell him who he is. She's going to tell him about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's going to tell him about how God has preserved his life. She's going to tell him how God has been so very faithful to protect, preserve, and provide for his own. She's going to remind little Moses of the promises of God. And let me tell you, that's going to be something he's never going to forget. Let me tell you something. You preschool moms? Don't underestimate the opportunity that you have to invest in your children spiritually while they're right there chasing you around every day, underfoot. Because it's those formative years of a child's life that, that folks, we really begin to learn who we are. We can begin learning some wonderful truth about who God is and, and the plan of God to save His own. So Moses knows who he is, he's a Hebrew. He knows he's a descendant of Abraham. He knows that he's someone who's come to inherit the promised blessing of God. In fact, if you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says that it was by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is, he renounced all of that privilege that he was afforded uh, as, as a prince of Egypt. Refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And What was his thought process behind all of that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He was looking forward to the reward. Here's a man who had had it all in terms of possessions and prestige and power and influence. All of that was his and then some, but Moses turns his back on that at a particular point in his life. It's a turning point in his life where somehow he comes to recognize that, you know something? My identity is not wrapped up in who Egypt says I am. My identity is determined by the God who's created me, by the God who's called me his own. That's who I am. Let me ask you that question. Have you learned that lesson in your own personal life? Do you know who you are? You know, we men, oftentimes, when we, you know, we're making small talk with one another, meeting, you know, passing each other, engaging in small talk, one of the first questions we ask each other is this question, well, what do you do for a living? You ever notice that? That's how, how guys are. It's one of the first questions we have. What do you do for a living? You don't know why I think that is? Aside from just making conversation, I think that deep down, it's because a lot of times men get their sense of identity from what they do in life, their vocation, their calling, what they're passionate about, those kinds of things. We tend to gravitate toward that. We retreat into that, and oftentimes it becomes our sense of identity. But who will you be when you can't do that anymore? That's the question I want to ask. Or if your possessions, if this is where you get your sense of identity or what people say about you, if this is where you get your sense of identity, who will you be when those possessions aren't there? Who will you be when people are saying something different about you? Or if you get a sense of identity from your children and you try to relive your life through their lives, who will you be when they're no longer in the picture? See, folks, we tend to make idols out of those things where we we try to find our identity. You can only find your identity in one place, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. You will never know who you are until you understand whose you are. Whose you are. So Moses is learning this personal lesson in identity. Now, notice a second lesson that he has to learn, and it's this. Moses learns a painful lesson in humility. A painful lesson in humility. And you know humility is a lesson that all great leaders have to learn at some point in their life if they are to truly become great leaders. And Self-confidence and bravado are character traits that are often extolled by the world But the greatest leaders in redemptive history all learned the valuable lesson of humility, and that's a lesson that can only be learned through the pain of failure. And so this is a painful lesson in failure and in humility that Moses is going to have to learn. Now notice that he's got a noble intention here, because verse 11 says that when he had grown up, he goes out to his people... He looks on their burdens. There's a sense of him identifying with his people here. Their burden has become his burden. And it just so happens that he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now look what verse 12 says Moses does. He looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So before we're quick to pick on Moses here. Let's just emphasize that he sees a legitimate need. Moses sees an injustice taking place. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. Moses knows that it's a cruel and oppressive thing, something that was not just. Perhaps it causes his blood to boil. Maybe he's seething with a sense of righteous indignation. And by the way, this wasn't the first time that Moses had seen this kind of cruelty. Because for generations, the Egyptians had exalted themselves as being ethnically superior to these inferior Hebrews whom they looked down upon, whom they treated cruelly, whom they kept under the heel of their boot. And so Moses here, he sees a need. He knows that his people need a Savior. They stand in need of deliverance. And I'm convinced that at this point, he's determined that he's going to do whatever he can do to leverage all of his resources and power and save his people. As someone who comes from this unique position of power and influence, you know, Moses was a man who could have made things happen. He could marshal all of his resources. Here it seems that he's going to deliver these Israelites at least one Egyptian at a time. The point is Moses knew that something needed to be done, and so before I move on, let me just emphasize the importance of seeing a need and responding to it. All too often, we're prone to be so wrapped up in our own little world, so consumed by our own self-interests that we're blind to the oppressing needs all around us. I don't want to go through Christmas time this year just so immune and wrapped up in my own little world, totally oblivious to the pressing need that's around me every day. You know, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I don't want to be like the priest. I don't want to be like the Levite who's content to go on. I'm, I'm busy. I've got religious work that I've got to do. I'm too busy to take note of someone who's laying in the ditch in need of my attention and my help. Thank God for people who see the need. Thank God for, for, for women like Lottie Moon, who sees the need and responds to the need and 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 gives and goes. Thank God for men like William Carey before her, who is the founder of the Modern Missions Movement. You know the story of William Carey's life? Had a passionate desire to want to take the gospel to the nations. He goes to a minister's meeting. I think it's in, in 1782, if I'm not mistaken. He goes to a minister's meeting. He's 25, 26 years old. And and he, he makes this passionate appeal to that gathered assembly of pastors and clergymen about the need to raise funds, the need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there's this old senior minister named John Ryland who stands up and says, young man, you just need to sit down. When God decides to convert the heathen, he'll do it without my aid or yours. There's always been those who want to pour cold water on someone else's enthusiasm. Well, William Carey did not let that stop him because five years later, he's going to write this little pamphlet, uh, an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. <laughs> it's a publisher's nightmare, I'm sure, with the title that long. But basically he becomes the founder of the modern missions movement, takes the gospel to India, labors there seven years before he ever even sees his first convert. But you see, God uses William Carey and God uses Lottie Moon and God uses others to launch a movement where Christians are taking the gospel to places all around the world. And so thank God for those men and women who see the need and respond to the need. So Moses has noble intentions here, but I want you to notice something. Notice he makes a hasty decision because verse 12 says he looks this way and that way, and seeing no one, Moses struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So he sees the need. He's identifying with the people of God. He's got the best of intentions. His resume is loaded with admirable qualities. He's zealous for a cause, Yet his zeal is not according to knowledge. You know, Moses' failure here has nothing to do with his motivation because his heart was in the right place. The issue here was his method because here you see Moses trying to save God's people in his own strength, in his own power, in his own effort. One person has said it this way, without realizing it, Moses enters a vulnerable, dangerous time in his life. He grows antsy, anxious, impatient. In that state of mind, he launches a premature strike that results in disaster and a 40-year setback. Desiring to carry out the will of God, eager to do great things for God, he forced a situation which led to personal disaster. Now listen, how many of you know that you can go about doing the right thing, but you can do it in the wrong way? You know, we're not, we're not dealing with Reese's Cups here. You know the commercial, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. Eat it from the inside out, from the outside in, it doesn't matter because it's all good. But we're not dealing with Reese's cups here. We're talking about life and and, and we're talking about God's will and you know what? God's timing and God's way is just as important as His overall will. It's possible for you to do the right thing and do it in the wrong way. We can act in the energy of the flesh and not in the spirit. We can get ahead of God through hasty decisions due to our impatience. Verse 12 says, Moses looks this way, he looks that way. It's interesting, there's, there's one direction he doesn't look and it's up. I'm reminded of the phrase from one of our hymns that we sing from time to time, it says something to this effect, the arm of flesh will fail you. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. And so the arm of flesh, this is the tendency that we have to be self-reliant, to be self-assured. It's this propensity in my own life to wanna take matters into my own hands when God seems to be taking his time. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done that? I've done that. I can't tell you how many times I've done that in my own Christian life. When I should have just been patient, when I should have just prayed, when I should have just been still, be still and know that I am God. I tend to get hasty, and I tend to get impatient, and I tend to get antsy, and, and I can make a decision in the energy of the flesh and then suffer the consequences for it. Chuck Swindoll says, I'm convinced Moses was doing more than grandstanding here. He was absolutely sincere. He didn't see himself murdering a cruel slave driver as much as courageously striking a blow for God's people. The desire to do something right came over him, but his problem, he dedicated himself to the will of God, but not to the God whose will it was. There's a lesson for us here. It's one thing for us to dedicate ourselves to doing the will of God, but let me ask you this question. Have you surrendered yourself to the God whose will ultimately it is? We can become so bothered and we can become so burdened by the injustices that we see in the world that we resort to fleshly means in order to address them. You see this kind of stuff on social media. Sometimes we get so worked up by what we see on social media as believers And then before, listen, I think James said something like this Every man be swift to hear and slow to tweet. I think that's something I read in in, in the Bible. But we get so hasty, we fly off the handle in our indignation. We may see an injustice, we may see some wrong idea, we may feel like we need to respond to some situation, and then we respond out of our anger. And in so doing, we ultimately lose credibility when it comes to our witness. There are a lot of believers who lose credibility just the way they act online. Beloved, be careful what you put out there for the whole world to see. Be careful how you respond when you're under pressure, because oftentimes pressure reveals contents, the contents of character. So if we're not careful, if we're not discerning, we can attempt to do the right thing in the wrong way. And so listen, this requires humility on our part. Moses, he's going to have to learn humility. He's 40 years old, and and here he is acting in haste. He murders an Egyptian. He buries that Egyptian in the sand. And then notice what happens. He goes out the very next day, and he sees two Hebrews struggling together and says to the man in the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And then the man answers Moses, who made you a prince and judge over us? You mean to kill me just the same way that you killed the Egyptian? So here you have credibility lost, don't you? And then Moses was afraid and he begins thinking to himself, surely this thing is known. And so then he begins reacting in fear. Fear. He has noble intentions, he makes a hasty decision, and now here's a fearful reaction. In fear, he begins to run. He tries to hide. Moses flees from Pharaoh who puts a hit out on him, and he goes all the way to the land of Midian. Now you're going to learn that Midian is is a place of the wilderness. It's an arid place, a dry place, a place of a desert-type climate, and yet he sits down by a well because he's thirsty. He's a man on the run at this point. He's made a hasty decision. He's been well-intentioned, but now he's, he's confronted with all of these thoughts that are probably just going through his mind a hundred miles an hour. I'm a failure. I tried. I've been found out. I've been willing to be a savior, but I'm a rejected savior. Here you have... A man who went to his own, his own received him not. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? Here you have a a man who had had a remarkable birth. We would even say it was miraculous, the circumstances that surrounded it. He sees a need. He responds to that need. He comes to his own, whom he's identifying with. They reject him. They don't want his salvation. Folks, listen, this story is just pointing us to a much bigger story. Moses is an imperfect deliverer. Moses is a man who's going to have to learn some lessons, lessons in identity, lessons in humility. But Moses, he's he's simply a signpost in redemptive history that's pointing us forward to another deliverer who's going to step onto the scene, who's going to have a miraculous birth. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this baby's going to be perfect in every way. He's going to be sinless in every way, spotless, a lamb of God, a deliverer, one who comes to identify with us. God who wraps himself up in human flesh, comes to where we are, enters into our mess. He comes into his own, and his own receive him not, according to what John writes in the first chapter. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's rejected, despised, and yet it's going to please the Lord to bruise him, to chastise him. The stripes that are laid upon his back ultimately will be for my healing and for your healing. See, Moses, he tries to deliver his people by killing a man. Jesus delivers his people by laying down his own life. <laughs> huh? And Moses is going to learn that God's going to be the one who's going to achieve the salvation of his people. It won't be Moses. It'll be God working through the instrumentation of Moses. Moses is going to have to learn some lessons in humility and pain and suffering and hardship. I imagine at this point, he probably thought his life was over. He probably thought his best years were behind him. In faith, he left all of that in Egypt. He's now in the wilderness of all places, and you know what God's going to do? God's going to make a shepherd out of this once proud Egyptian. (laughs) He's going to make a shepherd out of it. The very thing that Egyptians despised, Moses becomes. Isn't that a lesson in humility? Let me just wrap this up this morning. Let me give you three lessons by way of just application as I close. Moses needed to learn three major lessons. We need to learn these two. Number one, we need the wisdom of God to accomplish the right thing in the right way and at the right time. We need the wisdom of God. We're so prone to be attracted to strength. We're so prone to be proud of our resume. We're so drawn to those who seem to have what we would call the it factor. We get so caught up with a person's charisma more so than that person's character. And yet all the while, if we're not careful, we can begin thinking like the world around us thinks. God's not impressed with the things that man is often impressed with. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Psalm 147, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. So I need the wisdom of God in order to accomplish the right thing in the right way at the right time. You fill in the blank for your own life, whatever decision you're faced with. Don't be hasty. Commit it to the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Both the steps of a, and the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And then the second lesson is this. We always go the wrong way when we choose to go our own way. At least that's true in my own life. Andrew, when, he's, when, he's long, when he was little and he was learning to walk and getting into stuff, you know, he just had such a, such a confident little spirit. He would say something like this. He would say, I do it. You'd come, you'd try to help him with something, and he would say, I do it. I can't help but think sometimes we say that to God, don't you? I do it. I'm doing this. I'm going this way in life. I want this. I want that. We always go the wrong way when we choose to go our own way. That's why the Bible says that we need to walk in the Spirit and we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then one final lesson is this, and thank God for this, we can be forgiven and still used by God even when we've gone our own way in life. Isn't that a good word? Nobody will ever stand before God and be able to say, I did it my way. No, we always come to him on his terms, his way, in Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, we'll deal with the consequences when we get ahead of God, when we walk in the flesh, not by the Spirit. Maybe you've had the best intentions in your life. Your track record has reflected a pattern of ambition, but, but little knowledge. Great in the way of zeal, little in the way of knowledge. God help us to be patient. Men and women who look to the Lord and find our strength in him. Now listen, if you're weighed down by failure this morning, you you say, I can identify with Moses here. I've been hasty. I've done some things, said some things, acted in some ways that I just shouldn't have. And I feel like I've hurt my witness. I've hurt a relationship. Listen, the good news is you have hope in Jesus Christ. Moses is a work of grace. Same thing's true for me. The same thing's true for you. I am what I am by the grace of God. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul had to say about it? Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? The turning point of life. Maybe you, maybe you find yourself at a turning point, maybe a crossroads in your own life this morning, faced with a decision that can change the direct tra- trajectory of your life. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I can tell you you're at a turning point. You're at a crossroads this morning. What decision will you make? Will you walk out these doors and and say to the Lord, I do it. I'm going to do it my way. Or will you simply repent of self-reliance and self-assurance and the pride of self-confidence and say, Lord, not my will but Thine be done. I need your mercy, I need your grace. I cast myself completely upon your mercies. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus this morning as your savior, let me tell you, he's a perfect savior. He's a perfect savior who laid down his life for you on a rugged cross, who rose again from the dead, which means that he is able to save those who come to him in faith. Would you come to Christ this morning if you don't know him? Yeah, pastor, you don't know what I've done in life. I've made a mess of my life. Listen, all of that's irrelevant. You come to God as you are. Turn to him in saving faith, and my friend, he will save you, and it can be a major turning point in your life. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word this morning. Oh, God, there's so much we can glean from these passages in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus and to the hope that we have in him. Take these truths, Lord, and change us. Give us patience, oh, Lord. Work in us humility as we walk by the Spirit, not in the energy and effort of the flesh. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.